Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. Welcome to the Loma Linda University Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you will be blessed by the message. Comedian Steve Martin once said, Before you criticize a man, walk a mile in his shoes. That way, when you do criticize him, you'll be a mile away and wearing his shoes. It's becoming easier in our society, easier than ever, to criticize people from a mile away. In February of 2020, uh, country music star Garth Brooks, any Garth Brooks fans in here? Anybody like Garth? Yeah, it's a few of you, tentatively raising your hand. Garth Brooks gave a concert in Detroit, Michigan, and he did it while wearing the, the jersey of retired uh, Detroit Lions running back Barry Sanders. But when Garth posted this photo, this photo of himself backstage, it confused some of his uh, followers because they saw the name Sanders and the number 20 And they thought, they assumed that he was conveying support for Senator Bernie Sanders, who at that time was running for president. And as you can imagine, the backlash was immediate and intense. One Instagram user wrote, good grief, can't you just do what you get paid to do? Why, why does it have to involve politics? Three exclamation points. So sad. We don't pay good money for anything other than to watch you perform. Thought you were different. Another wrote, weird that a millionaire would, be, would like a socialist. Hey, Garth, are you going to distribute your millions? Only on the internet, right? Now, before we judge these people too harshly, it's important for us to remember that we also can very easily slip into this kind of critical mindset. I mean, think back to this week. How many times did you see someone doing something you disagreed with, saying something you disagreed with, and had your mind immediately jump to criticism? Just as an experiment this week, I decided to keep track of how many times I did that. And let me tell you, the results were not pretty. I'm not going to give you the actual number because I don't want to tempt you to judge me. But (laughs) it was high. It was a high number. I mean, I found myself criticizing clerks at the pharmacy for how they organize their aisles. You know, why would they put the adult Claritin in one aisle and the children's Claritin in a completely different aisle? I found myself judging people at, in line at, at, Costco who, who, at Costco Gas who would wait until they got to the pump before they started fiddling around looking for their membership card. I mean, why, why, what were they doing in that 30 minutes they were waiting until they got there? (laughs) And then, of course, I found myself criticizing drivers on the road, right? I mean, that's an easy one for cutting people off, for rolling through stop signs, right? It's called a stop sign, not a roll sign, right? (laughs) 
I see some of you nodding in agreement. I see others of you judging me for judging you. The truth is we enjoy judging people. We do, we like criticizing people because it makes us feel good about ourselves. And yet social media has created a venue, a forum where we can publish our opinions, our criticisms, our judgments on everyone and everything everywhere. And it's created a culture where criticisms are louder than caring. Where we are judged more by our failures than we are by our feats. And where it feels like some failures are so bad that they seem final. That there's no way out, that once we make that critical mistake, we we wonder if there's any way to get out of it. So while we're judging other people, we are also secretly wondering if others are judging us. Like if they knew the private decisions that I made, would they reject me? Would they mock me? Would they cancel me? See, we're in the end of a series where we've examined the dangerous myths that shape our identity and drive our behaviors. And there is no more dangerous myth than this, that some failures are final. Because that's antithetical to the central message of Scripture and the opposite of what Jesus came here to do. So if failures aren't final, how can we ensure that our failures aren't final for us? To answer that question, we're going to turn to an an encounter that Jesus had with a, a man who was told that his failures were final. It's found in Luke chapter 19, starting with verse 1. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open them up, turn them on, flip them over to Luke chapter 19. We're going to start in verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. Now, this account occurs in the middle section of the book of Luke. See, Luke divides his gospel into three different major sections. The first section deals with Jesus' ministry in Galilee. The middle section deals with Jesus' journey from Galilee to Jerusalem. And the third section deals with Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem. So each of these sections are connected more thematically than they are, are chronologically. And so the theme of this middle section is that no one is outside of the reach of the Savior. No one is outside of the reach of the Savior. So in account after account, Luke describes how Jesus brings outsiders in. A bleeding woman, a blind beggar, a bunch of lepers, those whom society had rejected, Jesus restores. But there is no, there is no outsider that the people love to hate more than Zacchaeus. Take a look, verse 2. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. So there's three things, three facts that Luke wants his readers to understand about Zacchaeus. And the first was that he was a tax collector, which was very controversial back then. It's not like now where everybody loves to pay their taxes and can't wait for April 15th. No? No? Well, as much as we hate taxes now, they hated them even more because the Romans came and conquered the Jews and then forced the Jews to pay the Romans for the privilege of being a part 
of their empire. I mean, that would be like me coming into your home and charging you rent for the privilege of living in your own home. And the tax collectors were Jews who enforced Roman tax laws on other Jews. And the worst of all, they benefited from this betrayal. They, they could set the taxes as high as they wanted. And, and as long as the Romans got their cut, they didn't care. The tax collectors could keep the rest. So, so these tax collectors were despised by their communities. They were hated by their communities. They were on the same level as conmen, cheats. Dallas Cowboys, you know? Everybody hated them. Nobody liked them. Amen? No amens? <laughs> you know, think, about, <laughs> think about how you feel when you think of a person like Harvey Weinstein, Bernie Madoff, people who take advantage of others for their own benefit. That's who these tax collectors were. And Zacchaeus was the chief tax collector, which means that he was the kingpin. So that's the first thing that Luke, the first fact that Luke wants us to understand about Zacchaeus was that he was the chief tax collector. And the second fact, the second fact was that he was rich, which means that he benefited a lot from his unsavory profession. He was very good at doing very bad things. That's how he became the chief tax collector. That's how he became rich. So if there was anyone who deserved to be canceled, if there was anyone who deserved to be rejected, if there was anyone who deserved to have his failures be final, it should have been Zacchaeus. But lucky for him, this is not the end of his story. There is one more fact that Luke wants us to understand about Zacchaeus. And this fact makes all the difference in the world for Jesus. Take a look, verse three. Zacchaeus wanted to see who Jesus was. But because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. You know, a lot of times we get sidetracked by Zacchaeus's height. Right? The fact that he was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. But that's not what Luke focuses on. What Luke wants us to understand is how desperately Zacchaeus wanted to meet the Savior. How desperately he was seeking the Savior. This is not some mild curiosity for him. He's not come for the show. He's come to encounter the Savior. He's not there out of curiosity. He wants to meet the Christ. And we know this because of how he behaves. He doesn't give up at the first sign of difficulty. You know, the, when the crowd pushes him aside, which they did. I mean, the way that this passage is written, it's clear that, that the crowd was intentionally getting in his way. And that is a theme throughout the book of Luke. The crowd often gets between the seeker and the savior. Like when the demoniac clung to Jesus, the crowd pushes him away. When the bleeding woman tries to reach Jesus, the crowd forms a barrier. When the blind man tries to shout out to Jesus, the crowd tries to silence him. The crowd often gets between the seeker and the Savior. And I wonder, 
Do we ever behave like the crowd? Do we ever get between the seeker and the Savior? By our words, by our actions, by our beliefs that some failures are final, do we ever get between the seeker and the Savior? I wonder. But despite the crowd's best efforts, Zacchaeus will not be deterred. And so he, he casts aside his dignity and pride and runs, runs to that tree and climbs upon it, which is something that, that people, men and women in that culture just did not do. They did not run and they did not climb trees, which is why author Robert Stein in his commentary on this passage writes, such undignified behavior according to that culture indicates that more than curiosity was at play here. See, Zacchaeus wasn't there just for the show. He was there to encounter the Savior. That's the third fact that Luke wants us to understand about Zacchaeus. He was desperately seeking the Savior. And that fact made all the difference for Jesus. See, the crowd only cared about the first two facts. They only cared that Zacchaeus was the chief tax collector who had become rich by taking advantage of others. And they didn't care about anything else. They were so focused on his past mistakes that they didn't care about his present motivations. They were so blinded by the size of his sin that they didn't care that he was seeking the Savior. But Jesus did. That is the only fact that mattered to Jesus, that Zacchaeus was seeking him. So Zacchaeus' past couldn't prevent him from having a future with Jesus because no failure is final if we seek the Savior. Amen? No failure is final if we seek the Savior. And that's what we find in verse 5. When Jesus reached that spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. And so he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. See, this is no chance encounter. Luke is very clear that Jesus intentionally comes here to meet Zacchaeus. He writes, I must stay at your house today. And the word that we translate must implies a divine necessity. It's a word that Luke uses over and over again in his gospel to show that this is a God-ordained appointment for Jesus, right? In Luke chapter 4, verse 43, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom. Luke chapter 9, verse 22, the Son of Man must suffer many things. Again, in that same verse, he must be killed and on the third day <clears throat> raised to life. These were divinely ordained appointments. So meeting Zacchaeus on the road that day was just as much a part of God's plan for, for Jesus' life as him dying on the cross. Did you get that? Meeting Zacchaeus was as much of God's plan for Jesus' life as dying on the cross. I mean, think about that for a second. Zacchaeus has just gone through extreme measures to meet Jesus. I mean, he's, he's, he's gone straight on stalker fan on Jesus, right? He, he climbed a tree. He hung from a branch just to catch a glimpse of Jesus. 
I don't know if you've ever wanted to meet someone that badly before. I don't know, maybe the Wedgwood Trio, right? <laughs> any, any of you go to that concert? That was amazing, weren't they? They were so funny. Maybe the Heritage Singers, the Heritage Singers Bear. No idea why the bear is so popular. I know, Randy Roberts, right? The closest thing that we have to an Adventist celebrity. So imagine, imagine that you camped out, like you brought your sleeping bag the night before and slept right outside those lobby doors. So as soon as the, the deacons opened them, you could get, come in here and have a great seat. And you sit through the service, listen to the message, and then when it's done, you fight through the crowds, get in line to shake the hand of Randy Roberts. And when you get there and you reach out to shake his hand, he gives you a big Randy Roberts smile as wide as Texas, right? And he calls you by name and hugs you and says, I've been waiting for you. Can't wait to go to your house for lunch today. How would that make you feel? I don't know about you, but my heart would break out in song, you know? <laughs> he knows my name, right? <laughs> See, what's amazing about this moment is that as hard as Zacchaeus fought to get to Jesus, Jesus fought even harder to get to Zacchaeus. Come on now. He didn't just come from Galilee. Jesus left the glories of heaven above. He cast aside his dignity and pride and ran, ran to earth and climbed upon that dying tree just to be with Zacchaeus. Amen, Father, yes. So if you forget everything else I say to you today, remember this. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter what choices you've made, no failure is final because the Savior, He seeks for you. It doesn't matter if our families abandon us. It doesn't matter if our friends reject us. It doesn't matter if our communities cancel us. We have a Savior who will never stop loving us. The same Savior who fought through a storm and crossed a lake in order to free a demoniac, seeks for you. The same Savior who, who felt the touch of a bleeding woman through the press of the crowd, seeks for you. The same Savior who, who heard the cries of the blind men through the shouts of the crowd, seeks for you. The same Savior who came all the way from Galilee, to meet a tax collector hanging from a tree seeks for you. No failure is final because we have a savior who never stops seeking for you. See, Jesus, he's a lot like GPS. Anybody here remember those times when we used to use paper maps to try to find out how to go somewhere that we had never gone before, anybody? Anybody here still use paper maps? Yeah, there, there are some of you out there. Wow, that's incredible. So when I first moved to LA, someone gifted me a Thomas Guide, which was just a big, thick book of maps with every road in Los Angeles, and they would have to keep reproducing this because, of course, they kept building roads, right? And whenever I wanted to go somewhere that I hadn't been before, 
which was a lot in LA because it was my first time living there, I would have to look up the address in the appendix of that book and find what page that corresponded with and find that page and then sort of reverse navigate myself to my starting point and then kind of memorize those directions because you can't keep flipping the map, right? While you're driving. And that was all before I even got in the car. It was so hard just to drive somewhere you, didn't, you hadn't been before. But then we got MapQuest. Anybody here remember MapQuest? Yeah, some more hands go up. Yeah, MapQuest. And MapQuest made things a lot easier because all you had to do was type in your address, the address you wanted to go through, and then you could print, like on paper, right? Print up a map with instructions on how to go there. The only problem was that if you ever got lost, right? You missed a turn, missed an exit, forget it. You might as well just go back home because there was no map for that. But then we got GPS and all of a sudden it became so much easier to get where we wanted to go. Because we would just type in the address. You didn't even have to know what direction you were heading. I remember having to, is this north? Is this west? Is... You don't have to know any of that. You just type in the, uh, the address and the GPS would give you step-by-step -step instructions of where to go. And now we don't even need the address, right? You just say the name of the place you want to go and then, and then Google Maps or Waze will find the, the, the address and get you there. And what's so amazing is that even when we get lost, even if we miss the turn, the GPS tries to get us back on track, right? Like if you miss a turn, what does, what does the GPS say? Rerouting, right? I can tell that some of you also don't listen to your GPS sometimes, yes. Rerouting, it says rerouting. And even if you miss that same turn over and over again, the GPS never gets frustrated. It just keeps on rerouting and keeps on rerouting because the GPS never stops seeking for you. It never stops trying to get you back on the right track. All you have to do is be willing to follow. Amen. And Jesus is a lot like GPS. He never stops seeking for us. He never stops trying to get us back on the right track. All we have to do is be willing to follow. Willing to allow God to reroute our lives. See, that, that is what repentance is. It's just a fancy word for God rerouting our lives. Literally, re repentance is a change of direction. It means we were going one way and we turned around and allowed God to take us a different way. So how then can we repent? Because that's a good question because sometimes there's been a little bit of confusion on what it takes to repent. See, a lot of people, a lot of times people think of repentance as confession followed by punishment, right? We say that we're sorry for something and then someone meets out an appropriate amount of uh, punishment for us and then we move on. Because that's what we do in our judicial system, right? We, someone confesses to a crime and then a judge tells them what their punishment will be and then everybody moves on. But that is not what biblical repentance is. Repentance is not about retribution. It's about restoration. Can you say that again? Repentance is not about retribution. It's not about making sure that the offender suffers the same amount of pain that they caused. It's not about retribution. It's about restoration. 
It's about God allowing God to repair our lives so that we can be better. So how do we do that? How do we repent in a way that we can be better, that it allows God to reroute our lives? Well, we start by doing what Zacchaeus did. Zacchaeus started by acknowledging what he had done wrong. Zacchaeus acknowledged what he had done wrong. See, the reason why he went searching for Jesus was that he recognized that he had made a mistake, that he had made a lot of mistakes, that he had made choices that took him off God's path for his life. He recognized what he had done wrong. And if we also want God to be able to reroute our lives, if we want to be better, we have to start by recognizing what we've done wrong. We have to ask ourselves, who has been hurt by our choices? How have we hurt ourselves? How have we hurt others? How have we hurt God? How have we added to the brokenness of this world? Recognize what we've done wrong. And that's not easy. That kind of admission is actually very painful, which is why a lot of people avoid it. So instead, a lot of times what we'll do is we'll minimize what we've done rather than maximize our admission. It's kind of like, it's kind of like the man who cheated on his taxes. He was starting to feel so guilty about what he did. He couldn't sleep at night. So he decided to write a letter He wrote a letter to the IRS saying, I cheated on my taxes, I put the wrong numbers down, I can't sleep at night, so here's a check for $1,500. And then he added at the end, if I still can't sleep at night, I'll send you the rest. (laughs) Now we laugh, but that's exactly what we do, right? We We minimize what we've done instead of maximizing our admission because it's painful. But it is the only way for God to begin to reroute our lives. It's the only way to be better is to make a full confession and ask for forgiveness. So that's the first step in this repentance process is to recognize what we've done wrong. And the second is to realize why we've done wrong. See, after we've recognized what we've done wrong, it's important for us to realize why. This process of repentance begins, it begins with confession, but it continues through self-examination, which is why in Psalm chapter 139, the psalmist writes, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. See, the outward sins that we commit are a result of an inward brokenness. I love how Dr. George Knight describes this in his book, I Used to Be Perfect. Eve committed sin, in capital letters, when she loved herself and her desire more than she loved God and his will. She committed sin in her heart, and that sin in her heart led to the taking and eating of the fruit. Sin in the heart leads to sins in terms of actions. Something happens in the heart first. First, there is sin in the heart. That sin in the heart then gives birth to sinful actions. Thus, sin leads to sin. Notice that Dr. Knight associates sin with love. Because sin at its core 
is a misplaced love. It's loving something or someone more than we love God. So when we commit sin, sinful actions, at its root is a love for something. Wealth, power, belonging, acceptance, pleasure, comfort. These are not bad things, but sometimes we love them more than we love God. We love them so much that we're willing to sin in order to get them. So what is the sin that drives, what is the love that drives our sin? What is the desire that drives our behavior? See, all of us are warped in different ways inside. So some of us may lie because we want to belong. We want people to accept us, so we lie. Others of us lie because we, we want to manipulate or control others. We don't trust them, so we lie. The outward action is the same, but the inward desire is different. So if we want, to, we want God to reroute our lives, if we want to be better, we have to, we have to ask ourselves, why? We have to realize why we sin. Why do we do wrong? So that's the second step. We start by recognizing what we've done wrong. Then we move to realizing why we've done wrong. And then we move finally to the how. How do we begin to repair the damage we've caused? See, the amazing thing about God is that he doesn't take away our agency. And what I mean by that is we don't have to be parents for very long before we realize that we can't do everything for our children, right? That actually by trying to do everything for our children, we stunt their growth. So even if we can do something better as their parents, we allow our children to do it so that they can learn and they can grow. In psychological circles, they refer to this as giving a sense of agency or a sense of control. And God, like a great parent, does not take away our agency. That's why he invites us to partner with him in, in repairing some of the messes that we've made. I mean, notice in this story, in this encounter, Zac the process of repentance begins for Zacchaeus when he recognizes what he's done wrong. But it isn't until he begins to repair some of his messes that Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house. Take a look, verse 8. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. So he promises to try to repair some of the mess he's made. And that's when Jesus says to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. And then I love how this passage ends. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. See, that's why Jesus came. That's why the Savior came to seek sinners. Amen. Friends, this process of repentance will not be easy. It's going to take fight. It's going to take us casting aside our dignity and pride. It may even take us climbing some trees to get there. But it is the only way 
It's the only way for God to reroute our lives. It's the only way to be better. And the good news is we're not in this process alone. As hard as we're fighting to be with Jesus, Jesus is fighting even harder to be with us. So begin this process of repentance. Recognize what? Recognize what? 